0: Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. We've been talking about false teachers in Second Peter chapter 2. I kind of realized this week that as we're thinking about false teachers, there's something unsettling about talking about false teachers. And I think part of it is it's bound up in this idea that the Scripture says that we know in part That we really are bound up by, uh, we're we're people who are defined by a partial knowledge. Yeah, we have the fullness of the revelation of the scriptures themselves. But even the scriptures themselves speak about how there's mysteries that we don't understand. Deuteronomy 29, right? The secret things belong to the Lord. And when we talk about false teachers, it kind of brings up that, that sense of inadequacy in us. That we might be ones who are deceived. The, the, this discussion of false teachers makes us nervous. It highlights our lack of knowledge. It leaves us feeling exposed to error. Now, here's the thing: as we talk about this this morning in Second Peter chapter two, we don't want to create a sense of fearfulness. We don't want to create the sense of uh, of being afraid that we're being deceived. See, fundamentally, God has not given us a spirit of slavery, leading us to. Back to fear, as Romans chapter 8 says, or uh, perfect love, as 1 John 4 says, casts out fear. But we do want to create awareness. See, there are teachers and those within the church who want to use you to their end. They want to leverage your money, your talent, your efforts, your time for their fundamental purpose. See, as we look at Second Peter chapter two this morning, here's where we're headed. The big idea is that false teachers are enslaved, and they use their platform to enslave. Others, And we're going to really see this breakdown into two different kind of sections in our passage this morning. In verses 10 through 16, we're going to see the character of these false teachers. We're kind of going to review what we talked about almost a month ago in the first portion of this chapter of of the just overwhelming sinfulness of the character of these men. And then secondly, in verses 17 through 22, we're going to see the effects of these false teachers as Peter's going to lay out what exactly the product of these types of teaching is. And these men, the ministry of these men, these men are. So we want to start off and talk about the character of these false teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to invite you to read with me 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, the character of false teachers. And I'm going to start now in verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. What on earth is Peter talking about here? Well, if we were to kind of back up in our passage, we would find a lot of the themes from verses 1 through 3 are restated here for us in verses 10 through 16. And Paul, or Peter starts with a summary statement, and he says that they indulge in passions and despise authority. He says those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And that kind of matches specifically what Peter had spoken about in verses 1 through 3. If we were to kind of look back up there for a second, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, uh, it, Peter says that false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, right? They have false words. They have false teachings. In verse 2, he goes on and he says that many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Not only do they have false teachings and false words, they have a false character. They have this, uh, you know, this character given to the defiling passions that are within them. And so they have false teaching. They have false character. And then finally, in verse 3, their greed, they will exploit you. They have a false motivation. They're uh, motivated by their own greed, So Peter picks up on this in verse 10, and he starts tapping into this idea again, returning to the same concept, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. And what he's going to do is he's going to start with the second thing he lists here in verse 10. He's going to say, we're going to talk about their ability to despise authority. And so look at the second half of verse 10. He says that bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. See, Peter's telling that these false teachers are arrogant, they're insolent. Peter starts with the second description given in verse 10. They despise authority, and so he describes them as bold and willful. In their accusations against God's people, they are bold and willful. In fact, Peter says that they blaspheme, they they vilify, they speak evil against God's people. And what he does is he gives some perspective by giving a comparison. He compares them to the angels in heaven. The angels in heaven see everything uh, that that we do. They see all of our attitudes. They see all of us. And and yet they do not bring a word against us before the Father. But these false teachers have no shame in doing that exact thing. Verse 12 highlights again that they're uh, the end of their disrespect is judgment. That's what it says there, right? These like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant, right? That is that these false teachers are, are driven by instinct. And as such, they are to be caught and destroyed. What do you do with the possum that breaks into your garden? You get out the shotgun, or you find the trap, or whatever it is. I don't know. I've never caught a possum in my life. See, When these false teachers want to bring accusations, they are storing up wrath from God for themselves. And when they speak arrogantly against God's people, they, they store up for themselves wrath from God. It's not just that they speak arrogantly. It's that they're defined by their lust. Look at verse 13. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children." See, Peter tells us that they revel in the daytime, that they have eyes full of adultery, that they're insatiable for sin. It's not a flattering description of their character, is it? They cannot not think about sex or their desires or their lusts or their passions. You know, we've had no shortage in recent years of Pastors who are marked by sexual indiscretion. Again, notice this description is not with those who just occasionally are, or, are tempted by lust. These uh, describes those who turn a blind eye to their sin consistently, who invite others to participate in the sin with them. They entice unsteady souls. See, when we Think of false teachers, we we tend to think about doctrine, don't we? When we think about false teachers, we we tend to think about the guy we saw on TV that said the wonky thing about uh, the Trinity or the one who's had this weird prophetic thing. And we talk about their doctrine. But what Peter's drawing our attention to here is their character. Peter's highlighting for us that a person's character, a teacher's character, is as important as his doctrine. If someone is going to take on the high calling of preaching or teaching or pastoring, his character must be as developed as his skills in the pulpit. So Peter defines them that they're insolent, they're arrogant, they're filled with lust. And then finally, he goes on to describe their greed in verses 15 and 16. Verse 15, he says, "Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey with human voice and restrained, uh, a speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness." this whole thing about Balaam. Who is this guy? What are we talking about? If we were to kind of open up the the Bible to to, uh, Numbers chapters 22 through 24, we would read a story of a prophet of God named Balaam. And Balaam was approached by the king of Moab, Balak. That doesn't get confusing at all, right? Balaam, Balak, but Balak wants to hire the prophet Balaam to pronounce a curse upon the nation of Israel. Israel has left Egypt and they have this multitude of people and they're traveling through the land of Moab and Balak is afraid of this nation. And so he wants Balaam uh, to pronounce a curse upon them. And so what happens is he approaches Balaam and he, he asks Balaam to pronounce a curse, and so Balaam inquires of the Lord. And in Numbers chapter 22, verse 12, uh, it's on the screen in front of us. This is the Lord's response. So go ahead and pull that up for us there, Nathan. Numbers 22:12. 12, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. The nation of Israel is blessed by God. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, go to your own land for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. Sounds good enough, right? Uh, the prophet Balaam is being faithful. He's, he's saying, no, the Lord is not going to do this thing that you've asked of me, so you should probably just go home. Well, what happens is he invites them to stay, uh, and then they kind of go back, and, uh, and a little while later, they, they come back, and Balak makes the same request again, just with more money that he wants to appease Balaam with. And so Balak comes back with more money and more officials. And we see there's his response in verse 18 this time. He says, but Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord, my God, to do less or more. It sounds, again, very orthodox. But listen to what happens next. So you too, please stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. Let me just ask this question. Was the Lord unclear about what his desire was in his first response to Balaam? Of course not. He gave a very clear understanding that he was bound to bless the nation of Israel. And here Balaam is making opportunity for these, uh, these Moabites to stick around. He's, he's creating opportunity for them to kind of uh, win him over eventually. He keeps making these statements that he's not interested in Balak's money, but he also keeps letting Balak and Moab, th- that contingent, to just kind of hang around with him. See, what we see with Balaam is the compromise of a prophet who makes provision for God's enemies, who secretly has this desire for for monetary gain, and he's devoted to that to such an extent that he constantly is compromising. See, the end of this story is that Balaam eventually goes with the armies of Balak and goes and tries to pronounce curses against the nation of Israel, but can't. To the end that his own donkey speaks up in human voice and confronts him. See, the end of the story of of Balaam is tragedy. In Numbers chapter 31, uh, we read that when the nation of Israel destroys the nation of Moab, that Balaam is there in their midst. That Balaam is fully integrated to the life and times of of the nation of Moab. See, Balaam's story is one of compromise for the sake of financial gain. I think that's what Peter's drawing out here. He's saying, hey, these people, these false teachers, they, have, uh, they, they speak arrogantly, they live lustfully, and they're driven by greed. See, fundamentally, it highlights for us that what these false teachers desire to do is take. They want to take. They fundamentally have a, a, a stance of just receiving from you. Let's just stop and take inventory of what exactly Peter's saying. That these, uh, they defy authority, that they teach false things, that they speak out against God's righteous ones, that their uh, lives are marked by this pervasive lust, whether it be sexual or otherwise. They are constantly kind of just appeasing their own sexual or sinful appetites. And finally, that you're driven by this greed. You know, again, we could provide counsel, countless examples of this, couldn't we? We could think of, of all of the stories of false teachers that have risen within the last 50 years or even throughout church history. But I, I want to say this this morning. The usual suspects, those we see on TV, aren't the only ones that we need to worry about. It's not just those who show up on TBN that we need to be concerned about as false teachers. See, there's a way of running a church or of leading a ministry that is primarily self-interested It looks to draw a large crowd, and in drawing a large crowd, a pastor or a teacher can ensure his permanence in the pulpit. He gathers a larger and larger crowd by saying less and less about the person of Jesus Christ, by speaking less and less about personal sinfulness, about less and less about the atonement provided by Jesus Christ. This attitude is endemic in our churches. What we have today is not shepherds interested in the spiritual thriving of their sheep. We have, as my friend has said to me recently, we have church practitioners, those who traffic in religious services. They uh, promise a Jesus who will make your life better, who, who makes you feel better about yourself, and they hold out this positive religious experience. But my concern is that that type of pastoring doesn't create Christ-like Christians. It produces nice people. People who will never confront you, never tell you about your need of Jesus Christ. It, It produces people who walk out the back door of their church by the time they leave that body, the same way that they walked in. It never confronts their own personal sinfulness. It never invites them to the foot of the cross and and to take on the forgiveness and grace and mercy of Jesus Christ so that they might be transformed into something different. See, what this type of pastoring produces is sickly, selfish sheep. what happens then is we see it time and time again a pastor will move in preach a soft gospel move out in 5 years time when the sheep become selfish and start to bite back we were just in 1st peter 5 right And there's a sharp contrast between this way of thinking that 2 Peter 2 lays out for us and what Peter had described for us as what a shepherd should be in 1 Peter 5. It was in 1 Peter 5 that he said that shepherds should exercise oversight, that they should not do so under compulsion, but they should shepherd willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not uh, in, in a kind of a sinful, sensual way, but setting an example for the flock. And when we look at 1 Peter 5, the, the motivation is that someday the true shepherd will return and he'll reward his servants. So we have a, a fundamental contradiction, right? We have uh, these true shepherds called by God to, to lead and shepherd his church, and they're motivated by the glory of Jesus Christ, And these false teachers who are motivated by their greed and their lust. The contrast is clear. While God's called shepherds, pastors of local churches, are to be motivated by the love of Christ, false teachers are motivated by their desires. And I want to just pause and be honest this morning. This is why your elders need your prayer. The temptation is ever-present for us to embrace a very selfish form of ministry where we would not lay down our desires, where we would not lay down our wants, where we wouldn't preach the gospel with boldness. We need your prayers so that we can stay on this path that we want to please Christ rather than people. We want to please Christ rather than the desires of our flesh. See What Peter turns to here then in verses... 17 through 22 is not just the character of these men, but the effects of their ministry. What does a, a church look like that has these types of shepherds or these type of people that are pervading their culture? See the effects of false teachers in verses 17 through 22. Read with me these verse 17. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm for the gloom of utter darkness has for them excuse me the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for speaking loud boasts of folly they enticed by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error they promise them freedom but they themselves are slaves of corruption for whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved Returns to wallow in the mire. See, what Peter describes here is the effects of these false teachers. And the first thing he highlights in verses 17 is that they entice, but they don't deliver. They entice you, they, they draw you in by this appeal to the fleshly passions, but then they actually don't deliver anything of substance. He says they're like springs without water or clouds without rain. Now, you and I get lost in those metaphors because when we want water, we just go and turn on the spigot, Right? When the, the shrubs are dried out and you need to water them, you just turn the handle and sure enough, water shows up. But if you were in the first century and clouds were just passing over you, uh, you, you lost something. You lost crops. You lost the health of your vibrancy, your health, your, your, your sustenance. See, a cloud that didn't rain or a spring that dried up was a huge disappointment to those in the first century. See, these false teachers hold the promise of sustenance and relief, but they never bring it. They promise help, but when, they, when you follow their teaching, they are entirely unhelpful. Verse 18 restates their method. It says, For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. See, they speak folly, enticed by sin, and prey upon the weak. But verse 19 is where it gets interesting. It says, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And Peter goes on to describe this life of the false teacher where they are enslaved to their own passions. These are not men who are free to live out the righteousness that God has called us to. These are people who are bound to their own sinfulness. See, it's, it would seem that Peter is describing a person who knew Christ and then walked away from the faith. And we know from other passages, so we just want to be clear about this, that whenever someone genuinely comes to faith in Jesus Christ, that God completes what he started In fact, we'll see this in a few weeks when we turn to Philippians chapter 1, right? He who began a good work in you will be faithful to draw it to completion. I was just reading recently in John chapter 10, where Jesus is describing that that no one will take his disciples out of his hand, and no one will take his disciples out of the Father's hand, that there's a security in knowing Jesus Christ. We, we read our benedictions from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where, where Paul says, he who called you is faithful, and he will surely do it. He will surely sanctify his own. But Peter seems to describe a scenario in which these False teachers would know Jesus Christ, as verse 20 says, and then become entangled by the flesh all over again. And Peter tells us in verse 20 that this state is worse than the first, and what happens there in, at the end of the chapter is that uh, Peter quotes the Proverbs. He says it's like a, a dog returning to its vomit or a sow returning to its mud hole Those are picturesque this morning, aren't they? It's a picture of those who have left something disgusting behind only to return to it in preference to the thing that they had previously. What are we to make of this? I just want to state clearly this morning that we affirm that those who are truly in Christ cannot lose their salvation. Those of us who have genuinely been uh, called to a new faith, a new life in Christ, cannot lose it. But probably what what Peter is describing here is, is phenomenological. That's a big word. It's just a, a way to describe what he sees. Those who have been in the body of Christ, who've been baptized, who've taken communion, who've attended services, who, who've been around the body of Christ, but then somehow managed to leave that, that, that nest, as it were. John describes it this way in 1 John chapter 2. He says that they went out from us because they were never really of us. And there's something to be said about uh, when we participate in the life of the church, there might be something inside of us that motivates us that's not uh, the life of the Spirit in Christ. We might have some false fleshly motivations to be involved in the body of of, of believers. I remember another pastor told me about uh, someone in his congregation who blatantly looked him in the eye and said, no, I'm not here because I believe any of this stuff. I'm here because of my business. It's good for me to do business after having gone to this church. I I can reach new customers, whatever else. There's false motivations. What Peter is highlighting is that these false motivations are actually driving these people to the body of Christ, to take advantage of the body of Christ, and they're returning to their former way of life. What's Peter telling us here in 2 Peter chapter 2? I've kind of summarized it. He's, he's actually kind of uh, hit on a few different things. He starts in 2 in Peter 2, 1 through 3, and he talks about the false teacher's character. And we can see that he returns to that same concept in verses 10 through 16. But in between those sections, he highlights the, the false teacher's judgment that's coming. We saw that a few weeks ago. But he closes out with the false teacher's effects in verses 17 through 22. See, we can read through this whole passage, and we can understand, we can say, yeah, false teachers are dangerous. You've got to stay away from false teachers. You've got you to find yourself some good Bible teachers and, and surround yourself with those guys. That's what we have to do. But I think there's something in our text here this morning that if we're not careful, we might miss this. It's, it's a more uh, kind of softly stated principle that's here in 2 Peter chapter 2 and in 2 Peter chapter 1. See, the idea of corruption shows up a couple times in our passage this morning. And, and Nathan's uh, going to go ahead and bring up those passages for us here this morning. See, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 says, But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed... In their destruction. Now it might not look like that says corruption, but it's the same Greek word that's used again in verse 19. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. See what Peter's highlighting is that these false teachers have a corruption problem. And you're saying, What does that mean? It means that they, they are undergoing the process of inward moral decay. That it's playing out in their lives through the, the passions, the, the sexual whatever else that's happening, or, or the greed that drives them, that their inward nature of corruption, to which they are enslaved, is actually playing itself out for them. Now, you might remember that we also saw in 2 Peter chapter 1 the same term used again, and it's again on the slide here in front of us in 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 4. Remember, this is kind of the thesis statement of this book. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from what? The corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. What Peter is telling us is there's a a huge juxtaposition That we, as we are made new in Jesus Christ, are partakers of the divine nature. And in becoming partakers of the divine nature, we escape that inward corruption that we're naturally given to. As the sinful nature plays itself out, we would naturally be given over to sinfulness and selfishness like these false teachers are. But instead, through the renewal and redemption of Jesus Christ, we have escaped the corruption that's natural to us. See, so what Peter is saying to us this morning is that there is a true teaching that leads to a true righteous character, that leads to a true fruitfulness in Christ. Right? That's what Second Peter chapter, two, chapter 1 was telling us, right? After this, uh, Brian did such a good job of laying out the, the, the ongoing development of our character And we've escaped corruption, therefore we add goodness and hope and all of these things. And it it plays itself out in this fruitfulness in the gospel. But what the false teachers have is a false teaching that leads to a false character that's motivated by greed. And it leads to a hopeless ministry. See, all of this highlights for us something about the nature of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus himself wasn't bound up with our sinful nature, was he? Jesus himself was was one who was from God, that was working the works of God. When you read through the Gospels, whether it's Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, you have this sense that Jesus is speaking words from God, living out actions from God. Specifically in in the book of John, time and time again, he's saying, I'm doing the things that the Father shows me. And Jesus is one who's not given to corruption in his nature to the extent that when Jesus goes to the cross, when he dies at Calvary, his body doesn't rot in a grave. His body's not given over to corruption, but he's raised to new life. See, for you and I this morning, our hope is not in our ability to spot false teachers. Our hope is in escaping our own sinful corruption through our resurrection with Jesus Christ, right? I want to highlight this and just look back in 2 Peter chapter 2. And we highlighted this a number of weeks ago in verse 9. Peter says this. He says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And... To keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. See, our hope this morning isn't in the ability to spot a false teacher. Our ability, or our hope this morning, is in the God who saves his people from corruption, is in the God who brings us to resurrection in Jesus Christ. See, because Jesus didn't see corruption. We are now set free from it. You and I have the hope that we are no longer given to that sinful nature. We might still uh, struggle with things. We still have to confess and repent and and do all of those things. But fundamentally, our hope is that we have a renewed nature in Jesus Christ, that we also will be raised to new life with Christ, that we will escape the sinfulness, the, the, the corruption that's bound up inside of us as God sanctifies us and changes us. This morning, as Peter lays out for us the the marks of these false teachers, we don't need to be afraid because we have a God who saves. But we do need to be aware, don't we? And I want to just highlight a few things for us to be aware of as we look at this passage. A lot of times we talk about false teachers, and again, we almost always resort to doctrine. But what Peter's highlighting most this morning here is actually the issues of character, So I have three things for us this morning. First, avoid arrogant men. Second, avoid sexual men. And third, avoid greedy men. Start with avoiding arrogant men. See, arrogance has no place in the teacher of God's Word. See, the teacher of God's Word, the pastor, the preacher, recognizes that anything he knows has come from God, it's been granted to him in the Scriptures. The Spirit has made it alive in his heart and his mind. There's no room for us to be arrogant in the way we teach, in the way we preach. And what happens today is, is so many are, are willing to just throw out accusations of unfaithfulness. We just have to watch our, ourselves and our arrogance. See, arrogant men are willing to speak out against faithful men. They're willing to call out those who are faithful in the gospel for some minute thing that happens when they've largely been faithful in the midst of all of it. And they resort to name-calling and dismissiveness. Isn't that the tone of our era right now? That we, we just see this, this readiness to fight to the death about stupid, inconsequential things that aren't the gospel, that aren't uh, rooted in the Scriptures? It's a sign of arrogance when we're willing to go outside of the Word of God and to proclaim something as God's way when we have no authority to do so. It's a sign of arrogance when we want to pompously stand up and say, this guy is wrong, and this guy is wrong, and this is wrong, when we have no authority or grounding in the Scriptures to say such things. So the call is to avoid arrogant men. We should look for for men who who readily repent and confess and, and recognize their shortcomings, recognize the inclinations of their own sinful hearts. We should look for men who themselves desire to be pastored. So, first, we avoid arrogant men. Second, avoid sexual men. Here's what I mean by that. People who speak with impurity, people who joke and jest about something that is sacred and good. We should avoid those who, who are just so ready and willing to, to make jokes or to make light of, of sexual issues who are way too open about their private life or their personal life or who want to investigate your life in a, in a way that's just not proper and right. We should avoid any kind of uh, impropriety in the way we speak, in the way we think, in the way we act. We should avoid those who, who, who uh, seemingly have an a over-interest in, in connecting with people of the opposite sex. We should avoid overly sexual men who seem to make light of infidelity, who play around with purity. So we should avoid arrogant men. We should avoid sexual men. We should avoid greedy men. We should avoid those who are given to selfish gain. We should avoid those that seem to be motivated by money that have a constant orientation toward finances and and their own betterment their their bettering of their financial position you know it's funny because sometimes we think that a, a greedy person is a rich person but you can be greedy and extremely poor you're just orienting around yourself around the thing you don't have over all these things though what we should do is we should cling to christ over and above our our desire to avoid arrogant men or sexual men or greedy men what we should do is we should pursue a vibrant life of faith in jesus to good pastors good teachers good uh, leaders of churches what they do is they create a genuine love and desire for christ That's what our job description is. That's what my job is, is through the preaching of the Word, as the Spirit blesses it, to create a thirst in you for Jesus, to actually create a desire for more Christ, for more Scripture, for more love, for more fellowship with the saints, for more. Give me more Christ. That's my job, and that's Ryan's job, and that's Brian's job, wherever he is, somewhere around here. There he is. Our desire, our job this morning is to make you thirsty for Jesus. And if there's ever a place in our ministry where we hold up these words in selfish anticipation, confront us. Call us out. Invite us to repentance. See, what we need now is men who are so infatuated with Christ that they invite God's people to come and to drink of the fountain of living waters in Christ? Isn't that what we need? Aren't we done with these people who are selfishly motivated, who are playing upon the passions of their people who are drawing out in their own greed their money and wealth and time and effort. What we need is men devoted to Christ first and foremost. By the way, that's a two-way street, isn't it? I'm going to tell you here this morning that I can't preach Christ as faithfully. There's a temptation for me not to preach Christ as faithfully if I know you don't want to hear it. Doesn't mean I, I get off the hook, but it means that it's harder for me to preach faithfully when you don't desire to hear about the lordship of Jesus. See, this morning, as we look at 2 Peter 2 in, in whole, we walk away with this sense of we need men to teach what God has given us and to let God faithfully bring about whatever fruit he desires to bring about. I hope that that resonates with you this morning. I hope that we might be a people who thirst for Jesus. I hope that we might develop a culture of of leaders and men who who raise up, who want to be faithful to the true shepherd, Jesus Christ. We might push away from that selfish orientation that rests in all of our chests. I want to pray to that end this morning. also going to pray for our meal. I'm going to invite you to hang out with us here this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that we pray, Lord, that you would raise up faithful shepherds, that you would keep the shepherds that are here, to be, keep them faithful to you. Allow us, Lord, to continue to be devoted to your word first and foremost, and not toward our selfish desires, And I pray for Ryan and Brian and myself as we lead. I pray, Lord, that you would guide and direct us, that you would help us to be soft to the leading of your spirit, soft before your scriptures, soft before your intention and desire. Help us to be firm in, in the things that you've shown us from the scriptures. And above all this, be honored and glorified in us. I pray for those shepherds that might be being raised up even now, that you would allow them years of faithful ministry, faithfulness to your word. I pray now that you would bless our time together in fellowship, that you would allow the food to bless our our bodies, but our words to bless one another, as we remind one another of your goodness in Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.